Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. In this episode, we are speaking with David Phillips, New York Times correspondent and author of the book Alpha, Eddie Gallagher and the War for the Soul of the Navy Seals. In 2018, Eddie Gallagher, a decorated U.S. Navy SEAL, was accused of war crimes by his fellow SEALs in operations against the Islamic State. His trial and subsequent acquittal laid bare surprising details about some of America's most secretive special operators. Phillips covered the trial and interviewed many of the Navy SEALs who accused their superior of some deeply disturbing activity. The trial became yet another political flashpoint of the Trump presidency and ultimately resulted in the resignation of the Secretary of the Navy. Does this story reflect on the larger culture of America's special operators? David Phillips, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks for so much for having me on. So David, you called Eddie Gallagher a narcissistic sociopath. Uh, Who was Eddie Gallagher before these allegations were made? So I don't think that's fair. I didn't call him that. In in, uh, the book, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, Captain uh, Rosenblum, who was the uh, officer sort of overseeing all of the Navy forces at Coronado, uh, thought to himself, this is clearly who this guy is. Um, So there were certainly a number of SEALs who experienced Eddie Gallagher during this trial who who certainly came to think that that he had some deep social damages. So who is Eddie Gallagher? Uh, It kind of depends on who you ask. Um, my first introduction to him was through his family who said, Hey, you know, here's a guy who enlisted pretty much right when the war on terror started and has spent his entire life, uh, fighting, deploying to Iraq, Afghanistan, various places in the Middle East. Uh, he, uh, by the time he was charged with murder, he was a, uh, Navy SEAL chief. Uh, he had just done a stint commanding a platoon. He was, you know, getting close to the point where he was either going to retire or, or rise higher into the senior enlisted ranks. Uh, and around uh, the Navy base at, at Coronado in California, uh, you know, what people said is he had a really good reputation as as a real blow, uh, a real blue collar pipe hitting results oriented seal, a guy who loved combat didn't shy away from it, was dependable, funny, easygoing. That was one image of Eddie Gallagher. But the image that his, uh, the image that the SEALs that that served under him uh, portrayed was really different. Uh, And that was a man who was obsessed with his own kill count, uh, was willing to uh, lie uh, and break the rules of engagement to uh, make that count higher a guy who neglected his own uh, leadership duties so he could spend more and more time behind the sniper rifle. And a guy who they say they saw shoot old men, uh, women, children, uh, and murder a prisoner of war. So that's the the court cases specifically about the alleged stabbing of a prisoner that was taken during the engagement in Mosul, but but those accusations of uh, firing at non-combatants is one of the more disturbing uh, accusations. Talk about what was the situation that they found themselves in, and how did that lead to ultimately to the trial? This one SEAL platoon, which is about about twenty guys, give or take, 
was on an advise and assist mission with the Iraqi army. And the Iraqi army was essentially laying siege to Mosul, Iraq, which had been taken over by ISIS. This is a massive battle where they're surrounding an entire city, a city with probably 500,000 people in it, and then slowly tightening the noose on that city to uh, basically try to destroy all the enemy fighters that are in it. So in that advise and assist role, Eddie Gallagher's platoon, you know, some of the major action that they had was as snipers. They could do overwatch from a distance. They weren't allowed to get uh, right up in on the front lines and kick in doors. Um, and so Eddie had them basically doing sniper operations all day, every day. And, and Eddie Gallagher, even though he was supposed to be uh, the, the chief, think of it as sort of the coach of the basketball team on the sidelines, making the plays, uh, he instead uh, essentially appointed himself head sniper and was behind a rifle uh, almost every day, almost all day. Uh, and what people say they started seeing was him shooting at almost anything that he could. Uh, uh, now, to be sure, ISIS is a really complex environment uh, and not everybody there uh, who's a combatant is going to be dressed in a uniform or carrying a gun. And certainly the, the SEALs who were there as snipers understood that. And they would try to take time to assess, you know, who, who is good and who is bad, essentially, who is, might be aiding the enemy, carrying supplies to them, helping them. Uh, this is, a, this is a chaotic right. battle environment, to put it right. mildly. And, yeah. and so, yeah. like, these guys understand that there's a big gray area. And, and certainly they are raised in the SEAL teams where they're, they, they are biased towards action, you know. So they're, they're, it's, it's not like these guys work for Human Rights Watch, right? Um, but what they start seeing is him shooting at people and shooting people. Uh, that are so far beyond what they think could be possibly combatants that that it's really disturbing to them. Uh, you know, because remember, this is a city where uh, tens of thousands of people are held hostage. Uh, right. Um, right. And so there may be people crossing the street or going down to the river to get water or, or uh, something like that who are just trapped. And what they say is they saw um, him again and again, you know, shoot these people. Uh, and, and it became a, a real problem for them so much so that a lot of the, some of the snipers said they changed their mission so that oftentimes they were, their mission was to keep people from getting shot rather than, than look for enemy targets. And they would do that by shooting warning shots at anyone they saw basically venturing out into the street so that they could try to scare them away before their chief got them. Right. The, you, you quote one of those special operators saying, you know, it was exhausting. The tension of being forced to fire at people to make them flee in terror without accidentally killing them left, left them covered in sweat. That was a, a first class Dylan Dilly. So but that's not really the, the incident that ultimately, at least that's, that's, that causes the accusation that, that, that leads to the trial. Talk about taking the prisoner and, and what was alleged. Yeah. Um, let me just say, too, that like I think it was exhausting for these guys because it was such a, a bending of their psyche to try and come to the realization that they thought they had gone to Mosul to kill ISIS. And instead, they were trying to save people in Mosul from getting killed by their own chief. And, you know, for a, a young operator who really believes in the SEALs, love the SEALs and 
for all of these guys, loved Eddie Gallagher when it started out. It was a, a really strange journey for them that that I think a lot of them have not yet really come to terms with. So the the thing that really they became the center of the court martial uh, was the killing of a, a prisoner of war, and the way it came to pass, according to the, the seals who were there, is is that there had been a skirmish on the outside outskirts of Mosul. Uh, the Iraqi forces went into this small village. There was an American airstrike that hit a building and killed almost everyone in there. But there was a young fighter who was still alive and the Iraqis brought him back to the rear where the SEALs were. Um, this was confusing to, to the SEALs that were there because they weren't sure what they were supposed to do with this prisoner. Technically, this was uh, an Iraqi deal. They had been handling all this the prisoners, but this prisoner was specifically brought to Eddie Gallagher. And there's a video of, of Eddie taking control of him and saying to the Iraqis, I got this guy, I got him. So then the video shows that Eddie begins uh, performing medical uh, procedures on this, this kid. And it's, it's not anything that his background is originally is as a medic. Right. Right. Uh, and, and I was about to say that nothing that he was doing was what you wouldn't normally do, at least in the video that we see. He, there's this kid, uh, has been in this blast. He's conscious, but, but obviously suffering. He's got, uh, maybe a shrapnel or a bullet wound in his calf. Um, so, uh, uh, Eddie starts checking him for, for wounds and bleeds and, and then starts, um, performing basic first aid. So, what witnesses say is, is that they, they did a number of procedures on this guy, all consistent with how you would treat someone uh, who had been in a blast like this and maybe had a collapsed lung and, and other issues. And then when that was all done, three SEALs say they saw Eddie pull out a, a custom hunting knife that he always kept on his belt and stab this captive multiple times in the neck. A short time later, the captive dies. Uh, and then Eddie and the lieutenant in charge, a, a young officer named Jake Portier, uh, they gather everyone around and, and uh, essentially take a trophy photo. Uh, you can imagine, as you would, like a high school soccer team where Eddie's the captain in the middle, but instead of holding the ball, he's holding this dead captive in one hand and a knife in the other. And he has some of his guys ranged around him in, in a line. And and uh that was essentially uh, the day. Uh, after that ended, they they went home and and the seals with Eddie out of earshot essentially had a meeting, and the meeting came down to, look, we can't do anything like that. What the chief just did is not okay. Uh, it's a liability to all of us because if that gets out, we're all going home. We're not going to be able to do this mission. And so they have a meeting that says we need to essentially put a cord on around the chief. Keep him from doing any more damage. Don't let any more prisoners get anywhere near him. And let's just try and get through this. Uh, and they were ultimately unsuccessful because uh, according to the SEALs and what they later told authorities, he continued to kill uh, people with a sniper rifle after that. So, uh, you know, I, I know we're, we're blasting through this. I mean, the book goes into so much more detail. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty gripping read. And I, I, I don't think it's any surprise that <laughs> the case you build is a lot stronger than the case that the prosecutor built in the trial. Ultimately, he is acquitted and we should be absolutely cl clear about that. But in the trial, uh, these text messages come out about his relationship with his the, the guy who made the knife. The he, he he like custom ordered this this knife. 
from. Yeah. So like, I got to tell you, when I first started out uh, reporting this, I was, I was really treating this book like a whodunit. And then I realized that, that it's one of the worst whodunits that you could ever imagine. Eddie Gallagher, before he left for Iraq, um, texted one of his, his good friends, uh, a guy named Beto, who's a custom knife maker, said, you know, make me a knife, quote, I, I want to stick that knife in somebody's skull, or that's a paraphrase, but, but roughly he says that. Can't wait to use it. Um, uh, he um, then gets to Iraq. Three people say they see him use the knife and, and stick it into somebody's neck. Then he takes a photo with the murder weapon or alleged murder weapon and the body. And then uh, a few days later, he texts that photo to one of his SEAL friends and says, effectively, guess what? I did it. He, he actually literally says, good story behind this one. I got him with my hunting knife. So you've got a guy who say he wants, says he wants to do it. People saw him do it. He poses with the murder weapon, and then he says he did it. That's not a Sherlock Holmes type of whodunit. That isn't even murder, she wrote. Um, and what was interesting to me, what became the whodunit for me is, what is the culture surrounding this that, that created a guy like Eddie Gallagher that made uh, this type of killing uh, almost a status symbol in certain parts of the SEAL teams and also made it, you know, seem at least to me like the SEAL teams when they learned about uh, this tried to cover it up. And so that was really the compelling story for me. There, there's really two sets of culture that are at play here within the military. One is the special operator culture and then the other is the military code of justice and, and the court-martial culture. Uh, there's issues I think with both of those. Let's let's kind of talk about those separately. I, you know, Most of our listeners are either veterans or involved with defense and military in some way. So I think a lot of them are familiar with the dynamic within a, a unit, especially a small unit that's on a front line, that tension between the, the non-com and their officer, who's often very junior, um, you know, in a SEAL team's, uh, you know, case and Eddie Gallagher's case, he's a chief, he's very experienced, he's got a lot of years and a lot of action under his belt, he's got this young LT over him who doesn't have any of that. And, and the system is by design meant to be kind of a reverse mentoring uh, relationship, right? Talk about the dynamics of this specific case and, and maybe how that relationship went awry. Yeah. So I think that all of those dynamics that anyone's ever been in a platoon is probably familiar with are that much stronger in a SEAL team because of the, the SEAL team cultures. For example, in the SEAL teams, everybody calls each other by their first names. Uh, rank is very rarely mentioned. And there's really a perception that uh, the lieutenant is not necessarily the person in charge, but has his own specific role in the team as the officer. And that in a lot of ways means communicating with, uh, with the upper echelon and, and doing paperwork. And it's not that they're a disrespected member of the team, but they're just seen as having a specific role that is not necessarily superior to a lot of the other roles. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, 
Jake Portier, the lieutenant of Eddie Gallagher's platoon, had actually been Eddie Gallagher's student. The first time Jake went to the SEAL teams and, and went through the BUDS course, Eddie Gallagher was his instructor. So Eddie's really his sea daddy, someone he looked up to since he got to the right. Navy. And and that uh, that relationship was probably still in place uh, when he arrived. Add one more layer where in the SEAL teams, and I would say the rest of the, the nation, there's sort of a, a warship of the, the, the operator, the special operator. Um, and I think maybe it's very easy for the, the lieutenant to see Eddie as, as this, this massive father figure and authority and, and Eddie to see uh, his officer as, as a pencil pusher who, who he could mold to do what he wanted. And that's what SEALs say they saw in this, this platoon. Eddie took charge. He basically made the lieutenant do what he wanted to do, had him justify various tactical maneuvers in, in ways that he wanted to. And yelled at him and berated him so often that that it became a running joke in in the platoon that that the lieutenant was the chief's battered wife. So special operators in general and SEAL team specifically, I mean, they're designed to be highly autonomous. They're designed to be extremely aggressive. They're uh, they're trained to take initiative. They're in obviously in a lot of situations where oversight is not really practical. Was Mosul really that kind of situation? Were they were they the wrong tool for the job in Mosul? I mean, I, I think that some of the most successful SEAL team or special operator missions have been, you know, snatch and grab or hostage rescue or you know targeted killings or you know that sort of thing. They're essentially in a in an infantry support position here, doing Overwatch sniper Overwatch. Is that really the best use of this tool and? Did they have the proper oversight, not just from you know the platoon officer, but but from further above? Yeah. So um, just to be clear, I have never spent a day in combat boots, so I don't want to like decide what is right and wrong, what SEALs should do. But if you talk to the SEALs who were in Alpha, what they would say is, we were doing good work, work we were proud of in Mosul. Uh, and that type of work was, like you said, sniper overwatch supporting uh, these ground clearing troops, um, and also, uh, supporting with other weapons that you could deploy from distance, whether it's mortar mortars or JTACs calling in, in airstrikes, they felt that they were, were helping and, and they were able to do a lot of good work until they basically were hamstrung by their own chief. Uh, they felt that, that, they were so busy worrying about what their chief was going to do or that that he was taking them on, on missions that didn't really make sense. And at some point, uh, that became almost their their whole mission. And and so we're not for him. I think if you had asked them, you know, were you proud of what you did there? Did you make a difference? They would absolutely say yes. Um, and if you say, well, is this really a SEALs mission? I think that they would probably respond like, hey, we're we're trained to be creative. We're trained to, you know, go right. to a place right. without Absolutely. a clear mission and, and figure it out. And we did that, you know, and in this case, unfortunately, the mission we had to figure out is, is what to do about our chief. Right. One of the examples is uh, Gallagher wants to get closer to the action. He wants to be in actual close quarters and not just doing Overwatch. And he convinces his team to turn off their transponders, their, their locators, uh, so that their oversight doesn't their the, the command does not know what their actual position on the battlefield is this 
kind of sounds like a great idea if you're hard charging and you want to get into it, but it very quickly becomes, I, they, they realize that this is, this has some real downsides to it. Um, talk, talk about that, talk about that decision and you know, how that affected the team. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what these transponders are is basically everyone's got a smartphone running an app and it allows the command, uh, back at the talk to see where everyone is. You essentially become a blue dot on the map. And that's really important in a, in a situation like Mosul because you have multiple different forces from multiple different countries that are all sort of converging on a very complex urban battlefield. And in addition, you have you know a gyre of, of coalition aircraft spinning above that that are dropping munitions and if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time it's really easy to get fried uh but it's it says something about the seals and and you know how much they prize aggression that when eddie gallagher first said to his guys hey guys we're going to turn these trackers off so that we can get close everybody to a man sort of was excited you know, here was a leader they had that was willing to bend some of the rules to make sure they got some action. And, and I think they welcomed that. And it was only by degrees that they realized how dangerous that was. And the real tipping point came when one of the members of the platoon, they are right up on the forward line of, of troops and have turned off their trackers. One of the members of the platoon gets shot. And Eddie Gallagher, according to other members of the platoon, um, uh, said, no, we can't call in a medevac. We can't call one in because then the, the head shed will know where we are and I'll get in trouble. So what they did instead is literally hand carried him back to an area where it would be safe to report him, which, of course, takes time, uh, time that it wasn't totally clear to some of the members of the platoon this guy had. Now, he ended up recovering. Um, uh and so fortunately, we're not talking about a death, but that was a real wake up call for these guys. And they realized, like, we can't we can no longer trust this man, our leader, uh, to make sure we're taken care of because it doesn't seem like he's making decisions based on that at all. Does this story reflect on the larger special operator culture or based on your reporting? Do you feel like this is about the specific human dynamics of this platoon and this individual? One of the things that I was really curious about was, was Eddie Gallagher a one-off or was he a symbol of, of some bigger problem? Was there something in the SEALs operator culture that, that allowed, even encouraged this type of thing? And the first clue that I had that maybe something was up is that this was not um, the first warning sign that, that Eddie Gallagher might be trouble. Um, he had been, uh, you know, by his own telling, investigated for, for shooting a, a target through a little girl in Afghanistan in uh, an earlier deployment. He'd been arrested for assaulting an officer or a gate guard at, at uh, the Coronado Naval Base. Um, he had been um, admonished for you know, uh, physically abusing students at the SEALs um, Bud's course, like in every step of the way, there seemed to be signs that maybe this guy was was not a good dude, or certainly maybe not leadership material. And he kept moving on, and it seemed like people were covering for him. Um, and so that suggested to me that that this just didn't come out of nowhere. 
and I started asking around and, and what people said to me is that Eddie is, is kind of part of a subculture in the seals. You know, there's, there's this group of operators and it's, it's not any formal group. They don't have any formal name or membership, but there's a, a mindset, a culture that starts to think, Hey, I know way more than anyone else about how to do war uh, and certainly more than any of the lawyers or officers who sit behind desks. And so in, in these really dirty and unconventional fights that we have in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, we're just going to have to do it the way that we know how to do it. Uh, and we'll cover for each other uh, if, if anything gets a little hairy. And, you know, that culture kind of metastasized into a, a culture of, of just sort of, we do what we want and then uh, uh, we cover up for each other. And I saw that not just in Eddie's case, but when I was, was reporting the story, I kept, you know, finding different, different troubling cases of, of crimes that were covered up or misconduct that was covered up, seals that their buddies did them a solid by staying silent. It was as if I was walking down a long hallway and, and you know, there was doors on either side and I could look in and sort of see a little taste of this, but I just had to keep going down the, the hall of the, the story I was doing of this one platoon. But what seals told me is, is that's this struggle that's kind of baked into our culture. We have a culture that prizes independence and creative thinking that gives trust and some autonomy to these small groups of operators on the ground. And, you know, that is, is an amazing thing uh, if you have the right guys in that position. And if you don't, you know, if you have guys like Eddie Gallagher, they have enough slack, they said, you know, to maybe drift into some really dark waters. Do you see the fact that, Ultimately, his fellow SEALs, you know, reported him at great risk to their own personal careers and as a positive comment on SEAL professionalism. Well, I think anyone in the military knows that, like, I mean, any organization has people in it that are really amazing, courageous, you know, moral people. And then they may have people who are, are mostly in it for protecting themselves. And I don't they don't, you can look at any organization and especially any organization that has a high level of public regard and a low level of transparency, you're going to have issues uh, with that. There were absolutely really great guys in, in Alpha Platoon who, who saw what they saw, you know, realized not only is it wrong, but it's potentially you know, a, a cancer that if we don't cut it out is, is dangerous to the SEAL teams. Uh, and, and there were other guys that, that, didn't. They wanted to protect themselves or pretend it didn't happen, or they approved of what Eddie did. Uh, I don't think that that people like Eddie Gallagher are the majority of the SEAL teams at all. Um, it's probably just a small group of guys that think killing people is fun, uh, or at least that was what his alleged opinion was. Um, but, you know, it, it's a question of how the organization deals with them. You know, is the organization able to and willing to call them out, uh, expose possible wrongdoing within their own ranks and, and, and effectively deal with it? And I think that's an open question. Uh, in Eddie Gallagher's case, there were people that eventually got this reported and eventually got the authorities to act, but they ran into one wall after another to get it done. And it took uh, almost a year. 
um, before the, the authorities actually acted. Do you think that a component of it is that, uh, I mean, the military makes huge investments into, you know, these individuals are extremely highly, highly trained. There's, there's a big career human investment into these individuals. They're really, really a very small number of people relative to the larger whole doing an extreme amount of the heavy lifting, especially in the war on terror over the last 20 years. And we're very, very, you know, we're, we're stretched thin. You've, you've got a chief who's got, you know, 15 in, 20 in, years in, uh, that experience is a, a real asset to the military. Uh, do you think that there was a reluctance to come down on him for some of these prior issues that you were you were speaking about because of the the value of him to the organization as a whole? I, I don't know if it was that much. I don't know if decisions were made at a level where it was that formal or that strategic. I think you could think of it more as like a fraternity or a brotherhood where where, you know, these these guys, one of the things that they they learn from day one is is loyalty. And, uh, you know, that can take all sorts of different forms. I remember one uh, senior chief described it to me as, you know, loyalty can be really great. You know, it'll make you pull somebody out of a burning helicopter, but it can also be really toxic and, and it can make you cover up for someone who's doing something really terrible. And I think that there was a sense of like, hey, Eddie's a good dude. Um, you know, if he did something stupid, like, like, you know, kick a, a student or something like we'll take care of this. Um, and, uh, I think that that's a, that's a very human response. Like if you know someone personally, if you know that, that they've been there when it counted, you want to try and not throw the book at them. And, and then the question is like, then what do you do with them? And in this case, people just sort of covered up, moved him around, gave him new assignments, and he continued to move up. So let's let's talk about the trial. And I, I, I want to think about it in terms of what he was accused of doing is essentially war crimes of, of targeting noncombatants, of killing a, a prisoner of war. You know, the Geneva Convention covers once someone is in your care as a prisoner, you have certain obligations to their safety. Moments before on the battlefield, if they had killed that person, it would have been completely legal within the laws of war. So it's a complicated, chaotic, violent situation. Is the military judicial system really capable of trying its own members for war crimes? Let me just let me just say something because so often in the lead up to Eddie Gallagher's case, this was presented especially in conservative media as a gray area of the battle where, you know, minutes before this guy had been shooting at Eddie Gallagher and now Eddie Gallagher is trying to save his life. And the subtext was always, should it even be illegal for him to then kill him? So uh, right. it, that sounds like an academic question, right? That sounds like a, a question of uh, made up by lawyers and paper pushers. So let me put it in a different way that I think helps people see it for, for how the, the members of Alpha see it. What if Eddie Gallagher had been on the battlefield fighting ISIS? Eddie Gallagher, who had, had enlisted multiple times, volunteered to serve his country, was now leading this crack group of men, is shot on the battlefield, and he is isolated from his men, wounded and captured by ISIS. There he is surrounded by ISIS. And 
minutes before he'd been trying to kill ISIS, but now he's this wounded, unarmed captive who's there in their hands. And imagine how we would feel as a nation. Imagine how Fox News would have gone bonkers if all of a sudden the ISIS leader of their platoon had pulled out a knife and stabbed Eddie to death in a net and then taken photos with him. Like, does that sound like a gray area to you or does that sound like complete barbarity to the men in alpha? Like this isn't like fog of war. This isn't like moral gray area. It's just cold blooded murder. Like we don't murder prisoners. We then don't take pictures with those prisoners. You know, there is a lot. And I can't tell you how many different ways people said it to me um, uh, when I was talking to members of the platoon. But they said, hey, look, there's a lot of gray areas in Mosul. Like it's full of them. But this wasn't one of them. Like this was so clearly wrong. No, I, I don't. I, I'm, not, I'm not referring to the question of whether or not this is a, a gray area, much more so of, you know, the military has a, a hierarchy in terms of obeying orders of respecting superiors. It's difficult for uh, someone of lower rank to accuse someone of higher rank of a problem. It's, you know, uh, just the question of who is on the jury of peers of a person who's, you know, in the 1% of the combat forces in the military, the situations with the prosecutor, which we just haven't even touched on. Maybe, maybe you can kind of talk about that. So, I mean, it's it just reading your description of the trial, which is just surprise after surprise after surprise. It feels like in a in a civilian court, this would have gotten a mistrial a, a couple times over. Yeah. Well, uh, talk, I mean, talk, first, talk about some of the situations of the specifics of the trial and why. Yeah, it came let, so me, let me stick up for the the UCMJ for a second. Like this was far from perfect, and the there was definitely screw ups in the investigation and in uh, the the prosecution and in the trial. But geez, man, the civilian uh, justice system is also pretty damn far from perfect. And I, you have no idea if we would have Absolutely. gotten a different outcome. So, so I, I would say this, I think that, that the prosecutors and the investigators who uh, worked for the Navy and looked at this really tried their hardest and really tried to do their best and recognized that this was a serious case and and that it not only serious for the victims but for you know navy special operations in general you know you have to hold this type of behavior to account and they worked hard at it and and because of like you said a cascade of different things that that happened there was no conviction, despite the fact that that multiple SEALs got up on the stand and said, yes, I saw Eddie Gallagher uh, stab this captive. And they produced photos and text messages in which he appears to say he did it. Where where do you how do you account for that gap between y- your reporting that you describe in the book and the conclusion? <laughs> of the jury? I, I would say that the biggest thing and this is me speculating because I have no I don't have a clear idea of what happened in the in the jurors' minds. So uh, it was a jury that was uh, all men, all military, uh, nearly all of them uh, with ground combat experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, it was a bunch of like ground pounding grunts, just like Eddie Gallagher. So, you know, just imagine if you would some other sort of polarizing brutality case, for example, a white policeman in the deep South kills a young black man. Imagine if the entire jury pool was white cops. 
<laughs> you know, in a sense, I'm not accusing the jury of any wrongdoing, but they have a certain mind or worldview that is very sympathetic to Eddie Gallagher, even before anything comes out. They are overwhelmingly going to give this man who, who they see as a comrade uh, uh, the benefit of the doubt. And I talking to some of the jurors, that's what I heard. It's not that they believe he was completely innocent. They just weren't sure what happened in the end. Um, and so I think maybe a good portion of that is it has to do with with who they were as as military men. The other complicating this, probably the, the reason that that's a lot of people know about this case is because ultimately Gallagher's family defense team uh, took it to Fox and it, with with really ex- an explicit attempt to appeal to President Trump. Talk about how it then launched out of the courtroom and suddenly became this presidential football and, and, and what were the, the ultimate consequences of that? It was really fascinating to watch um, because, uh, you know, as a, a journalist, you know, I think a lot of the public lumps all of the media into to sort of the same boat. And, and so they think that what I do and what someone who's on Fox does is, is the same. And but it was amazing for me to watch time after time how uh, Fox allowed his family to come on and, and speak uh, without any challenge, without any hard questioning, without any voices from the other side or opposing views and essentially give what was like a Eddie's innocent infomercial over and over and over. That was often directed explicitly at president Trump. Um, and that's so different from, from what I do, what, what you do in terms of, of having different voices and, and opposing views. Uh, and it, it, but man, did it work? I mean, it really connected, uh, President Trump, you know, personally with Eddie Gallagher, he, he took an interest in the case. He he uh, got involved in the case several times. Of course, uh, he made some some moves to uh, pardon Eddie even before he went to trial. And uh, he didn't do that, but had all the paperwork ready. And the question is, which we will never have an answer to, would he have, have pardoned Eddie? Would he have reversed a conviction if Eddie had been convicted of, of murder? Uh, we don't know because, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the the jury found him not guilty of everything except for posing with a picture of a dead body. Um, but shortly after that conviction, uh, the president did step step in and and reverse that punishment. So essentially, uh, the president did all he could. Did you do any reporting around Spencer's resignation and and the back and forth of that? Yeah. So Secretary of Navy Richard Spencer got involved in this. And, and really kind of reluctantly, but he saw the idea of a president getting directly involved in the case of, of an, an accused murderer in, in uniform as really dangerous, right? Because here, here is a man, the commander in chief, who has the authority to do whatever he wants with the justice system, uh, with people in uniform, with their punishments. Uh, and yet to exercise that authority, the, the Secretary of Navy thought would have been extremely damaging to uh, both the Navy and the criminal justice system because it would have sent a message that, hey, A, you can break the rules of engagement and B, if you do, you can go on to um, you know, your favorite par- partisan news channel and get the president's attention. And then by making it political, 
you can bring him in and and he can essentially overrule the justice system. Uh, so the, the Richard Spencer was trying whatever he could to stop that from happening because he thought that that would be damaging way beyond just whatever happened with Eddie Gallagher. And he tried to broker this, this behind the scenes deal with the president to say, hey, look, sir, tell you what, you let uh, the Navy and the Navy SEALs um, uh, punish this guy. Let them uh, pull his Navy SEAL trident. Let them essentially throw him out of the Navy for misconduct. But I will then step in and reverse it. Um, and this is going to work. It, it, this sounds so conv convoluted, but he had convinced himself it would work. He said, this is going to work on two fronts. One, the Navy will be able to have a process where they held people accountable and then uh, other SEALs can see that this type of behavior is not acceptable. And two, uh, your guy, Eddie Gallagher, will be protected, but you won't be involved. So any, you know, any toxic effects of, of having the president involved in this will, will be insulated. And then you can fire me after I, I do this and I'll take the fall for all of it. Everyone gets what they want. No worries. <laughs> I think that there were several people around uh, Mr. Spencer who thought that this was kind of crazy, but he was really trying to do the best for these institutions, which he loved, both our democracy, which he believed in, and, you know, the rule of law and, and you know, the professional standards of the SEALs. And he thought this was the only way out, but the president didn't buy it. Uh, the president specifically told him no, fired him shortly after, and and then intervened very publicly and politically uh, on Eddie Gallagher's behalf. Do you know what the ultimate career consequences were for the other SEALs or for the 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 officers who were in charge of the platoon? I, I mean, did it? I mean, on paper, forget about how things actually work, but uh, on paper, the officers have the responsibility for what happens under their command. And they really should bear a lot of the blame for not interceding with Eddie sooner, regardless of whether or not, you know, he, he was an overwhelming personality or, or kind of bullied young officers. You know, it, it, they're officers for a reason. They're officers because they undertake a responsibility. How much did they share for the activities of this of this specific unit? Yeah. So there's two questions. What happened to the officers and what happened to the guys who uh, testified against Eddie Gallagher? So what happened to the officers? Um, there were consequences. One of them was criminally charged, uh, but those charges were dropped after Eddie Gallagher was essentially acquitted. He resigned his commission uh, and um, is now a civilian. Uh, there was another who who seems to have tried to to well, I was going to say cover this up, but but I think a better way to say it is is repeatedly did not report uh, uh, this incident when he probably should have. Uh, as far as I know, he's still in the seals. Uh, although what I hear is is he's not been put in any position of consequence. You know, it's 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 a military uh, tradition when someone's been a bad boy to sort of park him at a desk until they get the message and, and leave. And I think that this officer was very close to retirement anyway. Right. Now, what happened to the young enlisted guys? I think it's too soon to tell. I uh, have not seen any overt uh, retaliation against them. These guys are, many of them are still in the Navy. They uh, have in some cases been promoted. They're in positions of consequence. The question is, 
Will there be some effect on their careers over time? Are there still lots of people who quietly see them as traitors and are going to quietly work to limit their careers or, or force them out? I don't know. I don't think they know. I guess it's good news that we haven't seen them face any consequences yet. Uh, there are a lot of them who have, you know, gotten some kind words from very high up people saying, Hey, you did the right thing. Uh, but how do the guys in the ranks feel and, and how will they treat them? I'll be watching that closely. Final thoughts. Um, how has this changed how you think about the special operator communities, the, the SEALs specifically? You know, what should be our takeaway for its implications for, for the system, the larger system? I think that as reporters, it's we really struggle to cover the special operations community because everything is classified. You know, we're, we're not allowed to talk to them. We know very little about their operations. Absolutely. And so to a certain extent, I think that I was like most Americans in my image of the seals. I had a very positive image of the seals, uh, very much formed uh, by that narrative that the Navy had put out about, uh, you know, these high, tempo guys that get results, you know, that rescue hostages, that killed Bin Laden. And, and that's absolutely part of it. Um, I guess that that my perspective changed because I saw that that this organization, like so many organizations that, as I said before, have a high level of public regard and a low level of transparency. You know, this organization hit its skeletons. Um, and, you know, once that starts, uh, you, it, it can become really pernicious and just spread as you have to conceal more and more. Um, and so when I was able to get inside this, this one small group and see how that really played out, I would say that, that my real opinion of the SEALs changed in two ways. One, I have a much higher opinion of the SEALs uh, as individuals than I ever would have. You know, I've gotten to know some of these guys personally and and just seeing how they had the moral courage which is easy to say but hard to do to actually like do the right thing and do the right thing when the whole organization is telling you that it's wrong right right and i just have such massive respect for those guys and i'm able to see that the dark side of the seals he's one of the things that that i was able to view as part of my reporting is thousands and thousands of text messages that Eddie Gallagher sent to his buddies in the SEALs. And they like to talk about killing. They uh, make a lot of like racist, homophobic, sexist comments. They're just like the worst fraternity you could possibly ever cook up of just like, uh, you know, guys who have like unhealthy opinions of everyone else except them and what they do for fun is kill people. And, and then they, they kind of get into these like um, contests about like, well, who's done more killing? And it's just so, it was so dark. And I have no idea how pervasive those types of attitudes are, but I certainly was able to see, you know, how they, I mean, just imagine a, a subculture where part of your worth is measured by how many people you killed. Uh, and how that creates motivations to kill people, maybe in weird ways. That's how I tried to come to understand Gallagher and what he, why he did what he did. 
maybe it had nothing to do with the fact that he enjoyed killing these people or he felt they needed to be killed. Maybe it had to do with the fact that he was trying to fit in, that he wanted to be able to tell his bros when he got home, hey, I got a knife kill on ISIS because he knew that that would would give him a lot of stature. And, and just that kind of thinking and that kind of society that they, they created in, in the dark shadows of the seals was really troubling to me. Well, I think that it's a great read. It's, there's so many twists and turns we didn't really even touch on. Uh, I encourage people to uh, check out the book. Uh, it's Alpha, Eddie Gallagher and the War for the Soul of the Navy Seals. David Phillips, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military defense and national security issues that matter. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.